Let's pray. God, we are often uh, like those in the parable who are sleepy and drowsy, especially when it comes to spiritual things. And so we pray that in these next few moments you would wake us up to spiritual truth and reality taught by your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we ask. Amen. To be seated. Well, when was the last time you've been part of a wedding? A member of a wedding party? A groomsman? A bridesmaid? Uh, maybe a best man? Flower girl? A ring bearer? Maybe, maybe the last time you've been part of a wedding was you were the groom or the bride. Weddings uh, take preparation. And the occasion demands preparation. You have to uh, get on proper clothes. You have to be fitted for your tux, for your dress. Uh, then there's the wedding rehearsal because you, know, you need to know what you're going to do and where you need to be on the wedding day and during the ceremony. There's lots to prepare for. There's a young couple in our church that's getting married in the summer, Susan and Mike, and uh, they're making preparations even now. So you can talk to Susan, probably not Mike so much, <laughs> but about the preparations that are entailed. you got to get the photographer lined up, and what kind of food are you going to eat, and, and all, all sorts of preparations. I remember the day, um, the night before I got married, I was preparing for this momentous day, and I couldn't sleep a wink. And I remember pacing the halls of the hotel and uh, praying and just trying to prepare myself psychologically for this life-altering event. And it has been life-altering, I can say, <laughs> five kids later. But there's lots to prepare for when you, you think about a wedding. And Jesus uses this analogy. He says that we need to prepare to meet Him just like a wise person prepares for a wedding day. If you're a member of a wedding, you need to prepare for the final day. To prepare for the last day. To prepare for what the Scripture calls the day of the Lord. When He returns. When you and I will meet Jesus Christ. His teaching comes at the end of His ministry. He's told His disciples that He's going to be handed over by the religious authorities. He's going to be handed over to crucifixion, to suffering, death, crucifixion, a shameful death. And then he said, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. God is going to, God, my Father, is going to raise me to new and unending life. And then he has been promising, I'm going to come again. I'm going to re return. And so the, the emphasis here in these last chapters, and, and really starting in Matthew 24, he begins to talk about the end of time when he'll come again. The emphasis is, be ready. You do not know the day or the hour. In fact, he said in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven. Not even the Son of Man referring to himself. Only my Father knows the day or the hour. So everyone needs to be prepared and be ready. And Jesus teaches us in this parable to not be ready to meet him is to be like these five foolish virgins. And we would call them, I guess today, something like bridesmaids. These bridesmaids, these five bridesmaids, are pictures of uh, spiritual foolishness. Now, there are different ways to understand the details of this parable, but the point is the same. They were not prepared to meet the groom. That's why they were foolish. 
But some people will say Jesus is describing kind of the last stage of a wedding in Jewish culture. The bride and the groom have already been married. Perhaps they were married at the bride's house. That was somewhat common, I guess. And, and now that they've been married at the bride's house, the ceremony's been performed, they're, they're going in procession headed to the groom's house where they'll have a wedding feast. And the responsibility of the bridesmaid is to, at some point, join this festive procession back to the groom's house, to the wedding feast, which could go on for days. Other people think, no, what happened is that um, the wedding ceremony hasn't even taken place yet, and they're all waiting on the groom. He's been delayed, and so the, the bridal party is there at the groom's house waiting for him to come, and the bridesmaid, their responsibility is then when they hear that the bridegroom is coming to go out and meet them with the, with the, with the bride, and again, in a festive procession, come back to the groom's house. Well, uh, it doesn't really matter how we make sense of the details. Jesus isn't giving us a lesson here on first century <laughs> Jewish weddings. It's just the point that he's making that's most important. And the obvious point is that these five bridesmaids weren't ready. Look at verse 3. For when the foolish virgins took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They weren't prepared. And because they didn't take time to prepare to meet the groom, the groom, they couldn't be part of this procession. And ultimately, the groom rejected them at the wedding feast. I guess today it would be something like if you were in a wedding, if you were getting married, the bridesmaids come like 30 minutes later. They come 30 minutes late. Everybody's waiting on the bridesmaids. Everybody's looking at their watch. The pastor, the priest is up there wondering what's going on. And then they finally come in 30 minutes later and they're disturbing, and they're drawing attention to themselves. What would you think about people like that? Um, it would show that they really didn't take their responsibilities seriously, that they were careless, that they were thoughtless, that they were negligent, that they were selfish, that they were foolish. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's like that if you're not prepared to meet Him. As Christians, we believe, and we say this every Sunday, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. As Christians, we believe that God is the sovereign Lord of this world. The Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we believe that God has not taken His hands off. That God is still ultimately in control. We don't understand why everything is happening the way it is. But we believe that because God is the sovereign Lord, that He is directing history to an ultimate conclusion according to His purposes. And we can trust that. And so when we think about the last day, one thing that it should do for us as Christians is inspire hope. When much of the world is hopeless and we don't know what's happening and we've lost hope in humanity, we can say our hope is in God. And if you look at some images of the last day in the Old Testament and in the New, it should inspire hope. Isaiah, for example, his picture of the last day, one image is the lion will lay down with the lamb on the last day. There will be harmony where there's been disharmony. There will be unity where there's been disunity. There will be shalom. There will be peace where there's been violence. And we need that image today and we need that hope today in our world don't we um, St. John in the 
book of Revelation, his image of the last day when the new heaven and the new earth will come forth from God. He says in that day there will be no more sickness, no more cancer, no more multiple sclerosis, no more dread diseases. There will be no more sickness, no more death, and God will wipe away the tear from everyone's eye. There will be no more sadness, no more grief, no more pain. We, we need that image of the last day. It inspires hope. And Christians, if we believe these things, it, what it means is that we live in hope and we ought to be a sign of that hope in our world today. That's why we work for healing and we work to help people and we want to love and serve people, love God and worship. These are all previews. These are all sort of signs of the kingdom that's going to come most fully when Christ returns. So the last day is, is a day of hope, but it's also a day, the scripture talks about, of judgment. And so it, it should inspire us, in us, a seriousness. You know, the, the passage from Amos, where he says to the people of Israel who the, at this time are idolaters, unjust, they're living as if God doesn't exist and God's not going to hold them accountable. But yet, because they have their members of the covenant in name, they, they, they think that the last day is going to be good for them and bad for their enemies. And through the prophet Amos, God says, why do you hope for the last days? You're going to be accountable for the way that you're living, the way that you're treating others, because the last day is a, is a day of judgment as well as hope. Yes, we're to comfort one another with the words of hope about the last day, as St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. But it's also a day of judgment. So, so that's where we kind of live when we think about the last day. And Jesus is the one that God has appointed to be the judge on the last day. Jesus is the judge. Listen to what St. Paul says, Paul the Apostle, in Acts 17. He is dialoguing with um, the Greeks who are interested in philosophy in Areopagus. He's gone into Athens. He's seen the different statues, the different idols, the one statue to the unknown God. And, and he starts off by saying, I'm going to proclaim to you. I see that you're searching for God. Now, God has put it in the heart of every human being to search for him, to grope for him. But I'm going to tell you that God has revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ, who he raised from the dead. So now the time of ignorance is past. Now the time for groping is past. Because the light has been revealed and now you're to respond to the light that God has given you. And he says, there's a day that's coming that's fixed. It's on God's calendar. The last day. And when that day happens, Jesus Christ is going to come again as judge. And Jesus Christ is the judge, the apostle said. And we know that's true because God raised him from the dead. God marked him out as unique in human history. So he says in Acts 17, Listen to what Paul says. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What marks Jesus out as unique is the resurrection. Muhammad wasn't raised from the dead. The Buddha wasn't raised from the dead. No Hindu gurus were raised from the dead. No other religious figures raised from the dead. This signifies that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the man that God has appointed as judge. And if you believe that, even if you only half believe it, 
it makes sense to take seriously what Jesus is saying here. It's really in your own self-interest to be ready, to contemplate at least being ready to meet Jesus Christ. And it's only compassionate to work and to pray for those who don't know Jesus that they might be prepared too. At the very least, we get nervous about evangelizing and sharing the gospel verbally. At the very least, this should move us compassionately to pray for those who don't know him. But our problem is that we, we oftentimes want to wiggle out of thinking about hard, sobering things like this. It just is uncomfortable to think about the last day or our last day. We don't like to think about, think about it at all. The, the French philosopher Pascal says that we're like a man who's in prison and he's got one hour to find out what his sentence is. He's in prison. He's got one hour to find out what his sentence is and he can, he can work for a reprieve. He can work for a repeal of his sentence, but he's got one hour to do it. But instead of doing that, he plays cards. He doesn't want to face the hard truth. And I guess today we'd say, instead of doing that, he's on his iPhone, he's on his computer, he's watching sports. See, there's all sorts of diversions and ways we can be distracted from thinking about hard, ultimate questions. But Jesus, in this parable, says, wake up. Stay alert. Stay focused on what's really important, and that's coming down the road. Jesus stands at the end of the road for all of us, according to his teaching. He's the judge. So how do we prepare to meet him? Well, we're going to talk about that throughout this uh, next, these next couple of weeks. We're going to work, work our way through Matthew chapter 25. But there's a, there's a key point here. There's a foundation here that, that we see that will... That's, that's, the, that's the foundation for preparing to meet him, and it's found in verse 12. These virgins have come. They're not prepared. They have to go in the middle of the night to the 24-hour convenience shop where they can get some oil for their lamps. They go to the, the feast. They knock on the door, and the door shuts. Too late. And they come and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I don't know you. The key to getting into the wedding feast, the key to getting into the kingdom, the key to getting to heaven, it's all about who you know. It's about who you know. Do you know Christ? Does Christ know you? Does Christ recognize you as one of his own? To know Christ is to know Him as your Savior and as your Lord. Savior. Christ is the one who saved me from my sins. I know that I have offended God. I know that I haven't lived a perfect life. I know that I have hurt others and I'm accountable to someone greater than myself. I'm ultimately accountable to God. And God has provided a way at the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ through the shedding of His Son's blood, to forgive my sins. Christ took the punishment that I deserve and offers His life to me. And we remember that and we celebrate that every Sunday as we come to Holy Communion. And to believe Christ, to know Him, for Him to know you is to have that kind of personal relationship with Him where you say, Jesus Christ died for my sin. 
Martin Luther, the great reformer, said Christianity is all about personal pronoun. I, me, my. I need that. Jesus is my Savior. So He's my Savior and He's my Lord. He's my King. He's my Master. He's my Ruler. I'm going to live my life under His authority because I believe, I trust, that what He says about life is true. What He says about the purpose of life and the meaning of life and the priority that our life should be about, all that is true. I'm going to live under His authority. I'm going to read His words. And by the grace of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to strive to live my life in accordance with Jesus. And I'm going to fall, and then I'm going to go back to the cross and ask forgiveness again. But Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. To know Him is to know Him that way. And to, and to also be changed by Him and to know that through the work of His Spirit in us, we're being transformed each and every day. That my heart is being softened by the truth of, of Jesus Christ. And my eyes are being more sensitive. My spiritual eyes are open to spiritual truth and reality. This is what it means to know Jesus. But those who will approach Him at the last day who don't know Him, He'll say, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. Well, what about those who've never heard the name Jesus? This is a big question in our day. What about those who've never had an opportunity to know Him as Lord? There are some things we don't know. We know that Jesus is the only way to God. We don't know how He's going to deal with those who've never had an opportunity to hear. But we can trust His perfect justice and love. But don't let that trip you up. In fact, what, what happened at one time is Jesus was asked a similar question in Luke chapter 13. As he, I'm going to quote here, Luke 13, 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He's asking this question that many people are asking today about the wideness of God's mercy and love. Is it going to be few or is it going to be everyone? Which is what a lot of people in our culture believe. Everyone will get in eventually. And so somebody asked him this question that is churning in our own culture. culture. Jesus, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. He didn't answer the question. He says, you make sure you're striving. You make sure you're ready. You make sure you're prepared. I'm confronting you now at this moment with the decision. I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. You hear that again? I don't know where you're from. Getting in is all about who you know. And it's about knowing Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him for salvation. Being under His authority as a servant to a master. You can't get in on anyone else's spiritual coattails. The foolish bridesmaid said, can we have some of your oil? No, you got to get your own. You don't get in by just being a member of the of the religious crowd. They were part of this party. They were part of the, the bridal party. But in the end, they didn't know Christ. It's, it's, 
it's absolutely absolutely possible for people to be part of a religious crowd, even part of a church, and not know Christ in the way that the Bible talks about. It all depends, though, on knowing Jesus. I'm going to close with this. Henry Nouwen, who some of you know, maybe have read some of his books, he's a Catholic priest, a great writer, who died in 1996. Henry Nouwen, at the end of his life, this is kind of a side note, practiced what he called downward mobility. Everybody in our culture wants upward mobility. But he said, you know what? He, he was at a prestigious place in life, and he felt himself striving for more and more accomplishments and awards. And he said, you know what? This isn't the way of Christ. I'm going to strive for downward mobility. And what he did is he began to be a caretaker for a severely uh, mentally handicapped man. This, this man who taught, I think, at Harvard and Yale was a caretaker for a severely handicapped man. He spent the rest of his life doing that because he wanted to get close to suffering and he wanted to become more humble. What a great example. And, and at the end of his life, he had his funeral in 1996. His brother was there at his funeral. His brother was took another path. His brother was very successful in the eyes of the world. His brother was the um, head of the largest Dutch tourist association. He worked with diplomats and ambassadors in the upper echelons of society. And Henry's brother was sitting there at this funeral and he was hearing the difference that his brother had made in so many people's lives from all over the world. And he said, as I was sitting there at this funeral, I thought, what have I accomplished really compared to my brother? I've done nothing. I've reached the upper echelons of my career, but I feel empty. And he said, the difference is Henry knew God. Henry knew God. And he said, after that funeral, he began to make some changes. He reflected on the fact that his wife had died from cancer. His father had died. Henry had died. And he said, you know what? I need to prepare to get to know God in the way my brother did. I want to prepare to know this God. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. It's foolish not to do that. It's at the heart of our mission as a church. We say we want to know Christ and make Him known. We want to prepare ourselves. And we're about preparing others. God help us to do that. Amen.